Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. 97.1 FM Talk Podcast. We'll put this in the file of songs that basically nobody knows. But if it sounds even vaguely familiar, it's because this is the end of Nights in White Satin. Yeah, that, that never gets played on the radio. So <clears throat> unless you listen to the album uh, Nights and listen to you're just a big, big Moody Blues fan like I am, then you're not hearing much in the way of the end of Nights in White Satin that goes into that. Uh, I am only bringing that up for a variety of reasons. One is that in the last segment, we talked about Dana Carvey and Bill Maher and clean energy and the way that most people think about that. Well, that's actually the subject of this segment. So I'll get into that in a second. But also coming up in just a minute, we're going to talk to Dr. Phil Magnus. He did a very deep piece on how Dr. Fauci through the NIH, and whether this is just Dr. Fauci or the NIH, we'll find that out, uh, was able to successfully squash any dissent. And it's because he's a political animal. He's been that way for a long, long time, since the 80s. Uh, If you read The Real Dr. Anthony Fauci by Robert Kennedy Jr., you'll know that the guy is deeply corrupt. Um, And this is from people who are, they don't have any axe to grind personally with Dr. Fauci. In fact, in the case of Robert Kennedy Jr., he had he's he's a leftist. I mean, he he's a speaking of green energy, he's a green energy guy, he's an environmentalist, and that is how he got a reputation in Washington D.C. He's also just very anti-establishment. And so in that book, he outlines the history of Dr. Fauci and how this guy has been corruptly running medicine in the United States for a couple few decades now. Um, anyway, that's coming up next. I bring up Moody Blues simply because I, I go through phases. You may hear it on the show where I'm in a Johnny Cash phase, so I play a lot of Johnny Cash, or I'm in a Beatles phase, or I'm in a more modern music phase, whatever, uh, bands that you don't know. Lately, I've been in a Moody Blues phase, and I remember this random story when I was a kid riding the back of my dad's station wagon he used to have a tape that was just Moody Blues songs, and he'd play it, and I knew it backward and forward. That's why I played that coming into this segment. And I remember I was roughly, let's say, eight years old. I don't know exactly. And I'm sitting in the back of the station wagon, and the Moody Blues are very traditional British liberals, at least at the time of their their peak. And they wrote all these songs about being free. What, what does it mean to be free? And they did poetry and I promise I will do poetry at the end of this segment. <laughs> it's a reason to stick around, of course. My poetry is rather famous. <laughs> I'm not bragging. But my friend, eight years old, he goes, hey, why do they always talk about being free <laughs> in their music? And, and I took that opportunity to hold court. I, oh, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm eight years old. I've seen some things. I can answer that question for you. Clearly, it's because Great Britain as I know from the American Revolution, is not free. We had to rebel against the king and queen of England. 
And so they, you know, the Moody Blues, still in the 60s and 70s, were, were still feeling that. <laughs> this is what I told my friend. <laughs> the only reason I remember it is because I caught a glimpse of my dad looking at me in the rearview mirror, and he was clearly laughing at me, but trying not to let me know it. <laughs> and I was like, well, maybe I'm a little bit off here, but I feel like my thesis would stand. So anyway, they're they're liberals, they're traditional liberals, and they write music about being free. I just wonder nowadays, speaking of Bill Maher and Dana Carvey, which we just got done with the end of last hour, if a traditional liberal like Bill Maher has, has done an about-face, maybe not completely, but on so many things because of the authoritarianism of the left, because the modern left, at least the far left, is all about corporations and all about suppression of speech. It's the complete opposite of liberalism. So I wonder if people that were came up in the 60s and 70s as the as the liberals, you know, the hippies, if they now not not that they're conservatives, but they're definitely not part of this progressive left authoritarian movement. Climate science. Talked about that in the last segment, but here's good news. Let's start this hour with good news. A, I'm going to read poetry at the end of this, or at least I'm going to read it along with the Moody Blues. B, Another great, great news item and good news is that nuclear fusion has had a major breakthrough, a milestone for the future of clean energy, they say. And this is from U.S. officials, too. So there's, there's some nuance to the why this is not great news. But uh, overall, what we're talking about, if I don't know if you've heard this or not. It's not something that I've heard talked about a whole lot. But when there's a big breakthrough in nuclear fusion, that's a big deal. So this is from, and I, I chose CNN on purpose. I wanted to get a leftist view of this story. It says, for the first time, U.S. scientists produced more energy from fusion than the laser energy they used to power the experiment. Now, this happens naturally in nature in the universe with stars and our sun and things like that. That's why we can pull power from these things. But creating it has always eluded us. Anytime you put energy into something, the net output of that energy, unless you're using a natural resource like oil, has been negative. But now, there's a net energy gain. The experiment put 2.05 megajoules, the mega, mega family joules, of energy <clears throat> to target and resulted in 3.15 megajoules of fusion energy output generating more than 50% more energy than was put in. It's the first time an experiment has ever resulted in a meaningful gain of energy. And this is happening right here in the United States. Isn't that great? That is a good, these are all good things, because if this were happening somewhere else, Western Europe, whatever. But if it were happening in China, for instance, A, I'd question the science, and B, <clears throat> I'd be a little concerned, because this is a major breakthrough. Why a net gain in energy matters. Well, we're still a long way, it says, from having nuclear fusion power, the electric grid, experts caution. No dir. But the U.S. project, while groundbreaking, produced enough energy to boil only about 2.5 gallons of water. So th this is a major breakthrough in that it happened, but we're so far from this being practically used that it's just a milestone. So this isn't usable yet. But these kind of things are a big deal. And part of that is because... It's clean energy. So if you hate fossil fuels, you love this. If you like fossil fuels, I would, I would say that you probably still love this. I don't like that this is coming from the Department of Energy, 
the whole point of me liking this is not just that, hey, clean energy is good because, hey, I want I would love to see solar. I'd love to see wind work. The problem is they're not efficient enough. They can't replace what we've got. Talked about that in the last segment. Dana Carvey talked about that in the last segment. But we're on our way to these things. If we if we take our hands off libertarian view, take our hands off of the scales on these things, we can get there by just using what's available to us now <clears throat> and then letting the market dictate how we get and the technology dictate how we get there and when we get there. But we're not doing that. And that's why I, I'm I'm sort of bothered by the fact that this had to come through a U.S. official, the Department of Energy, say this instead of just the scientists who developed it. Because ultimately, the, the, the great news about this is beyond just clean energy, it's that it could become individualized energy, that you wouldn't have to be a part of the grid, you could live off the grid. That's why this is really good news. But we have to, along the way, make sure that the government doesn't step in, because they will love to get their greedy paws on things. Breathe deep, the gathering gloom. Here's the poetry. Watch lights fade from every room. Headsitter people look back and lament Another day's useless energy spent Impassioned lovers wrestle as one Lonely man cries for love and has none New mother picks up and settles her son Senior citizens wish they were young Cold-hearted orb that rules the night Removes the colors Removes the colors from our sight Red is gray and yellow white, but we decide which is right and which is an illusion. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. This is 97.1 FM Talk, and this is Wiggins America. Thank you so much to Dr. Phil Magnus, who's joining me this morning. Dr. Phil, oh, I don't want to call you Dr. Phil. That's not cool, right? I can't do that. <laughs> but you're with the American Institute for Economic Research, and you've done something that I haven't seen a whole lot of people doing. It's called journalism. So congratulations exactly. on that. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been uh Having to step up, and because uh, our news media has certainly dropped the ball on actual investigative work and reporting. Absolutely. So uh, let's instead of kind of peeling back the onion slowly here, let's dive right into your article. Forgetful Fauci's deposition. All those lies are hard to keep straight. What is the big takeaway that you want people to know from all of your research and and this article? Yeah. So the big takeaway is that Anthony Fauci is lying about his own record. Uh, both the actions that he took during the course of the pandemic and, in particular, his role in suppressing scientific dissent from the lockdowns. So in 2020, uh, AIER, our organization, hosted a conference that produced something called the Great Barrington Declaration. And this was a scientific statement of the case against lockdowns. And what we discovered through Freedom of Information Act requests is right after that conference was launched and it started to go viral in the, uh, the statement, Anthony Fauci and his then boss, Francis Collins, basically launched a plan 
to wage what they called, quote, a uh, devastating published takedown of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration by not challenging their scientific claims, but attacking them personally, calling them fringe epidemiologists, basically smearing them in the media. And we found direct evidence that this is the plan that the NIH put into action between Fauci and Collins over the next several days. In in light of the Twitter files and, and the things coming out about Twitter, is what you're talking about, about Dr. Fauci and the NIH censoring other viewpoints, is that is is the Twitter files just kind of a part of a larger goal here from Dr. Fauci and NIH? I mean, are we seeing different facets of the same prism here? I think that we are absolutely seeing different facets of the same prism, and they're being revealed almost simultaneously. So we know that uh, the NIH put pressure through the media and probably social media companies to uh, kind of tamp down on scientific dissent against the lockdowns, against the official position. They call it COVID misinformation. Um, at the same time, we just learned through the Elon Musk files that were released the other day that one of the Great Barrington Declaration authors, Jay Bhattacharya, had his uh, Twitter account basically blacklisted to make sure that it didn't ever trend or uh, was not seen by uh, large audiences, basically as retaliation from, as far as we can tell, for his role in the Great Barrington Declaration and for questioning Fauci in the lockdowns. Uh, so the mystery, I think, that we're going to get to the bottom of in the coming weeks as more files come to, uh, to light and as some of these lawsuits proceed is uh, actually answering the question of how much Fauci's own pressure on the media transferred over into uh, policies taken by some of these companies, by, by Twitter. Phil, explain to me the Great Barrington Declaration, because this isn't a term that even I, who, who've you know been in media, this isn't something that I've really heard a lot about. And why was it on Dr. Fauci's radar as something that he wanted to squash? Yeah. So the Great Barrington Declaration was a document that came about from a, uh, a small academic conference we hosted at the American Institute for Economic Research. And this was in October 2020, when the second wave of lockdowns for COVID-19 was uh, under discussion. And it was basically a document laying out the scientific case against lockdowns, arguing instead that we should have taken more of a uh, Sweden-style focused protection, where you take measures to, uh, to help people that are at high risk, like in, in nursing homes, uh, the elderly that are vulnerable, but everyone else gets back to basically living their lives as normal. Uh, so it's the case against all of the policies that Anthony Fauci and the NIH had been pushing since the start of the pandemic, all the lockdowns. And uh, when we released it, it first starts to go viral, uh, get some attention in the media because it's someone uh, actually making the case against what the government's line had been. And this came from three doctors from, uh, with impeccable credentials out of uh, Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford universities, top epidemiologists and professionals in that field. So as soon as it's released, it seemed like Fauci and Collins and the NIH uh, uh, bureaucrats basically had a panic moment that scientists were challenging their uh, delivered wisdom on what we should have done during the pandemic. And rather than actually engage in a debate over the scientific merits of the claims, uh, they took a strategy of smearing, of trying to discredit, of trying to uh, tear down the reputations of the scientists themselves. We're talking with Dr. Phil Magnus of AIER on Wiggins America.
let me ask you this, and not necessarily that this is something that I feel, but I know that there are criticisms out there right now of a lot of people who hear what we're talking about, and they go, you know what, though? That's all in the past. Why should we keep talking about Dr. Fauci? He's retiring. What What is it that we need to get from this? As you look back at what's happened, what is it that we need to know now going forward? Well, I think this is a lessons learned moment. Uh, we just have basically emerged from the last two and a half years of this unprecedented event in the history of our nation of a uh, massive wide-scale lockdowns, very heavy-handed government emergency responses to a pandemic, uh, claims of power outside of the normal procedures of a democratic governance. They, they invoked emergency powers in many cases to uh, implement some of these policies. And people are asking the question quite rightly, uh, like, what was this all for? It doesn't seem that the lockdowns worked or delivered any of the promises that they were uh, sold to us on. Uh, so I think now is the time that we need to ask those questions of what happened. And part of what happened also means looking at our institutions and the figures that were involved in them, like Anthony Fauci, uh, where they erred, where they went wrong, uh, because this is the first step that I think we need to restoring credibility in the public health arena is to, to you know, look at, at the officials that made bad calls, uh, hold them accountable, uh, discover what we did wrong, and make sure that uh, our institutions are in place, that we don't recur down that same path in the future. As you've looked at this and researched this, Phil, is this a Dr. Fauci problem or is this an NIH problem? I think it is unfortunately both. Uh, you know, one of the problems here is Fauci was at the head of the NIH for 40 plus years. Uh, when you have a bureaucrat that becomes entrenched like that, he becomes politically powerful. What does the NIH look like after Fauci has departed? Well, I, I think they have a credibility problem that comes from uh, being under the leadership of the same person for so long. But they also have a credibility problem because that person engaged in politics rather than science. Uh, he was a skilled political actor, and he steered the reputation of the agency in that direction. So they need to uh, really kind of do some damage control internally and depoliticize their own ranks. I'm going to ask you a question here as we, as we kind of run out of time. It's, it's a big-picture question. I just This isn't necessarily related to research so much as just the sense that you get as you've been researching. But you know, as you as you're releasing this article, it's right in the midst of looking at the corruption, you know, like I mentioned with the Twitter files, and we're finding out just how much big tech and media and corporations are working hand in hand with government agencies like the NIH, which is what you're talking about. Do you get the sense that we ha are coming out of a dark era and now these things are coming to light and hey there's light at the end of the tunnel because light is a great disinfectant or are we is this indicative of just a new era that this battle is just beginning so i see some hope ahead the fact that we are starting to get the freedom of information act requests delivered although there are people in the nih that are still redacting still trying to keep these documents from coming to light but it seems like the pressure is growing. In Fauci's case, he just three weeks ago, he was ordered uh, by a federal judge to be deposed by the Attorney General of Missouri, where they grilled him mm -hmm. over his role in these documents. And he basically lied his way there, but uh, now we at least have that as a matter of public record. Uh, as the new House of Representatives takes effect in January, I can see them moving forward with investigations that have been stonewalled for the past several years. Uh, so I think there are a lot of signs that... Uh, 
it's inevitable something will be investigated. Some of these uh, pieces of information that have been hidden will come to light. And with that, I think it's going to be very eye-opening for the public with what they get to see as they peek behind the curtains of an agency that was presenting itself as the science, but it was really just a political actor. Well, Dr. Phil Magnus, I feel like we have just touched on the the high level, just the, the peaks of the iceberg sticking out here. There's so much more to what you have discovered and, and what's in your... If, you, if people want to go and read more in-depth about what you found, uh, where do you want to direct them to get this article? So I would urge them to go to www.aier.org, and we post copies of all the emails that we found through the Freedom of Information request, all the public records that we've come to light. Uh, so they're available there for uh, readers to see with their own eyes, at least the non-redacted parts. So AIER.org. AIER.org. That's American Institute for Economic Research. Dr. Phil Magnus, appreciate your time and your work this weekend. Trisha's back. We're going to talk some news here because it's time for us to ask serious questions. You want to go first? Sure. Serious questions. Feel free. All right, let me go. I'm going to go now. <laughs> and go. <laughs> and going. Trump teases superhero announcement. So I know this is old news at this point because we know what the announcement we know was the, at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see him teasing the announcement, though? Yes. Okay, I did too, and I thought, and that's what. What the heck is this going to be? Donald Trump is teasing a major news announcement on his Truth Social site in a 15-second video clip. The former president said that, "quote America needs a superhero," before sharing a cartoon of himself posing like Superman outside Trump Tower. The animation showed Trump ripping his shirt open to reveal a superhero costume, six-pack abs, and lasers firing out of his eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Clip also promised a major announcement on Thursday, December 15th, which we now know is is basically Trump online trading cards. <laughs> you got it. Yep. Uh, my serious question was, do you think Trump actually has a six pack? <laughs> your, your serious questions are better than mine at this point. Um, yeah, I do. You for do? Sure. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, he hits a gym a lot. Yeah. He's kind of known. He's, he's, like, got he's that known Putin as a fitness vibe, advocate. Like, shirtless on yeah. the horse. Him and Michelle Obama are kind of in that category together. So similar with those arms. And the, and the health food. Did you want to talk about Trump's Pokemon cards? <laughs> do you? I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't either. The the image and stuff and the, the teasing of it, it was no big deal to me. It was Trump. Well, I shouldn't say the teasing of it because the... The major announcement thing was was teased as if it were going to be that he was announcing a vice presidential mm-hmm. pick. It's ridiculous. Or he changed his mind about running. He's or that a too. Path. Yeah, we all literally went, anything. I'll come back on Twitter. I'm going to tweet for the first. That time. That would have been a major announcement. I but I felt like even the way he teased it was bigger than I'm going to get back on Twitter. It seemed like get ready because I've got. An announcement. Like he was, he's struggling in the polls right now. Sure. He's losing favor with Republican voters. There's no way to get around that. It's happening. Mm-hmm. This is very typical. I don't care about any of that Trump because he, somebody came to him with a business idea and is like, I think we'd probably make roughly $500 million on this. Okay, I'll do it. 
no, no thought about came anything to else. To him with a storyboard of him as Superman with a six pack. Yes. And he was like, yep, do it. Yeah, with no physical art. <laughs> I don't even want to get into the fact that this is only online stuff that you buy. It's not you're not even buying actual tops trading cards. No, it's like Pokemon Go, but with Trump. It's just <laughs> there's my my brain explodes when we talk about this story. Which we have been for three or four days. I know, I know. Because there's so many angles to how nuts it is. I know. I just didn't, I missed it this week. I didn't get a chance to talk about it. I just. uh, It's happening now. I can't do it. I can't say anything. What's your serious question? Okay. Skate Canada, which is an organization in Canada that skates. (laughs) The, the organization skates the, or people well, that are in the organization skate? I guess technicality. Or the do they people, put the... Okay. The people skate. Uh, they have changed their ice dance and pairs rules. This is a pretty major organization, too. To allow any two skaters to compete together at domestic events. Okay. We've got a whole Blades of Glory situation on our hands here. So, yeah. We're not talking about having to have man-woman anymore. Can be you can have man-man. Whoever you can hold on the you ice. You can have woman-woman. Serious question. Serious question. Will this impact the sport at all? <laughs> uh, likely not. I didn't think so either. Although some people's partners are getting heavier and some people's partners are getting lighter. Well, that's why I don't think it'll affect it. Because if you're the person throwing the other person, you're going to want to be a dude throwing who's bigger, throwing a woman who's smaller because that's going to help you compete better. There's probably muscular women that could throw small men or women. I'm not saying that they don't exist. And I'm not saying that a I'm just big cheerleaders, muscle you know? bound. There's always a top of the pyramid. CrossFit woman couldn't throw some dude who's a horse jockey. No, that she could probably, happen. Well, yeah, she could do that. Yes. Yes. But the in likelihood to really compete at the levels that you're talking about. It's still probably going to be the same, right? It depends on how big the woman is and how small the jockey man is. <laughs> what, serious question. Would you watch more Canadian figure skating pairs if you had giant Igor woman throwing a little jockey man if there is su- onto a horse? If they're as successful as I think they're going to be <laughs> with that with that physical makeup. Yes, absolutely. I would too. They'll be gaining attention globally. But that's the only scenario that I would watch it yeah. more. Is if it were that crazy. So they've given us the option to not roll that out now. Your turn. Great. Serious question. All right. How goblin mode became Oxford's word of the year. I have heard this. Okay. The slang, I still don't know what it means, though. The slang term is defined as a type of behavior which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly, or greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations. Think mindless binge-watching television, eating snacks in bed, wearing the same pair of pajamas all week long, you're working from home, you're never leaving, you don't care about it. This year, Oxford Languages, the creator of the Oxford English Dictionary, titled Goblin Mode as the 2022 word of the year, meaning it best reflected the ethos and mood of the past 12 months. Serious question. Serious question. Are you a fan of Goblin Mode, the state of being, and the terminology? Uh, No, I'm not a fan of the term Goblin Mode because I already have a term for that. It's called neckbeard. You ever heard of that? No. Same thing. It's if you are so slovenly 
that you that let your, your beard neck, grow on your <laughs> yeah, and even worse like maybe you take care of your face a little bit but you mm-hmm. don't do the neck mm-hmm. the neck beard's getting out of control you are in goblin mode huh. that's just a new term for an old thing well, actually, this term first appeared on Twitter in 2009, but didn't go viral until this year, according to Oxford Languages. I don't get why they're trashing on goblins. That's kind of my question about it, too. What's wrong with goblins? Dude, are they notoriously lazy? I don't get that sense. I don't think so either. I think they're coming after people. Like, they got to eat. You know? Yeah. They I don't think they're guarding bridges or anything. I, I don't know. I don't know about their grooming habits. I don't either. Don't they? Are goblins the ones that live under bridges? No. Well, trolls do. Trolls guard do goblins. I don't know. Why are you saying garden ninjas? What? What did you say? <laughs> I said trolls guard bridges, <laughs> not garden ninjas. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, what do goblins do? Oh, they work at the banks at Hogwarts. They're very clean. Oh, this is rude. Okay. <laughs> right? That's the only recent reference I have. They work at Gringotts. They're a little crabby, but I think they shower. I'm a fan <laughs> of the state of being in goblin mode, if you were wondering. I think it's great. That breaks, so, like, that's so slovenly that it breaks social norms, though? Yeah. Yeah. Like, on the weekends. No, my. Like, you're coming into work with cut off gym shorts and. No, this is only when you don't have to come into work. <laughs> no, but, but I think the point of being in goblin mode is, it, is that you are doing that stuff. That you are just coming in. I don't think you're cold. coming in. I think you're working from home and letting that stuff happen. Okay. Uh, to answer your serious question, still no. Okay. <laughs> I just don't like what they're doing to goblins. <laughs> I'm stopping fair. there. I'm stopping. Uh, we are going to stop. Uh, Old Roy promised that he was going to be in next week. Actually, he promised he was going to be in this week. I've heard so, that a lot. I know. haven't seen Roy in weeks. I know. It's the problem. I, I'm, I'm going to support his business. Say if you're in the Highland, Illinois area or if you're anywhere in the Illinois region and you want to stop by a really cool new Irish pub, that's Old Roy's pub. It's called Tulligan's. It's in Highland and it is open. So I have not been invited. And you may not be because of all of the things that you say when he's not here. I tell him, and I amp it up, too. You tell him? Yeah. He doesn't listen to the show, so there's no way he would hear it. <laughs> but I do tell him, and I tell him all the things that you said, and then I attribute well, some of the things that I said. Could you let him know that I would like an invitation to Tulligan's and Highland? Well, I'm, that's what I'm telling you and everyone right now, is that you really don't need an invitation. <laughs> it's not RSVP. I, I would like to be put on the list. It's just, yeah, it's like any other place that you go to I'd like, have a beer. I'd like a table reserved. Okay, I'll, I'll talk to him <laughs> and see. But yeah. That's that's where Roy is. Hopefully he'll be back next week. All right, I got a few minutes here at the end of the show. I opened the whole show with this, so if you missed me talking about the Kerry Lake lawsuit versus Hobbs that will be decided in court, hopefully this week. I mean, this is when oral arguments are starting is this week. This is when the trial will start. It could bleed over into the actual um, swearing in of Katie Hobbs, in which case I'll get to in a second what would happen. And what Carrie Lake's team is arguing what should happen there. But before I do, we covered some of the chain of custody problems. We covered some of the disenfranchisement that Republican voters, well, really all voters within certain precincts had at certain times because the machine's going down, but that it disproportionately affected Republican voters. That's solid stuff that you could make a case altered 
the election. That's real stuff. There's some other stuff that's in here that I think isn't as strong, like uh, sworn testimony of a random security expert. You know, uh, it doesn't mean it's valueless. It just means one guy saying this looks fishy doesn't usually go very far in court. But things like tens of thousands of mail-in and Dropbox ballots did not satisfy signature requirements. That's a legitimate complaint that will be heard in court. Um, I'm going to go over real quickly again if you missed the beginning of the show. I would suggest that you listen to that because, as I said then, there's very little reporting on the substance of these lawsuits. I'm trying to get to that. But one of the big um, allegations in this lawsuit from Kerry Lake's team versus Hobbs is that between 15,000 and 29,000 Republicans were disenfranchised who would have voted for Lake on Election Day. That is the, the specific number is what's going to be tough, but it is a cold, hard fact that many, up to 70% uh, of Election Day voters were voting in some of these precincts for Lake versus Hobbs. And of the 132 of Maricopa County's 223 vote centers, 59% were affected. Um, the county officials acknowledge that 70 were affected. Kerry Lake's team says that 132, but anywhere in there, that's a lot of people being affected if 70 of your 223 low end were affected by problems with the machines. And especially, of course, in Republican areas that went 70-30 for Lake. Now, one thing I did not get to as much in the opening of the show that I wanted to get to here is this word run back. Are you paying close attention to this? Because if you are, you've heard the word run back. Um, The complaint that Lake's team is alleging is that hundreds of thousands of mail-in ballots lacked a chain of custody. It says that over 298, so roughly 300,000 ballots delivered to third-party signature verification service run back on Election Day lacked a chain of custody, a Class 2 misdemeanor. This kind of stuff should be open and closed. Whether it will be in court, we'll see. But this is where we see some of these things. I've seen, maybe you've seen if you've been following it, claims that have floated around the internet that turned out to be false. So you can't just jump onto every bandwagon that comes by. Otherwise, you'll look like a little bit of a fool. And then they they trash you and say, look, you were wrong about this thing. Therefore, you were wrong about everything. Classic way to undermine an opponent. But this runback thing, a runback employee and others, other observers provided affidavits regarding witnessing this very thing. A runback employee provided an affidavit saying, yes, this is true. The runback employee also stated that there were at least 9,530 duplicate ballots printed and issued with no claim or no chain of custody. Two days after the election, 25,000 more ballots were found, which lacked a chain of custody. These are big, real problems. So if you don't, if you love the term election denier and you love casting these things out onto the sea and then shooting a flaming arrow at them and making sure that they drown, sorry, but there are real claims here. You may disagree with Carrie Lake, but put yourself in the other person's shoes and realize that if this was your candidate and a bunch of election machines went down on election day that heavily favored precincts that your candidate was going to do good in, you'd be screaming bloody murder. 
These things need to be vetted, they need to be tried, and they will be. And we'll be covering that right here on Wiggins America. Next week is Christmas. So, (laughs) I mean, we're not going to take a week off. We're still going to cover it because, man, this has been a big December. Still covering big stuff happening this month. So stick around for whatever's going to happen. Do you have high hopes? No, you don't. I don't either. Because we've seen a lot of these claims absolutely fall flat in court sometimes because of standing and stuff that you're like, come on, somebody give this its day in court. Somebody at least look at the claim that's being made. Well, I have at least some hope that we're going to see, we're going to see some evidence being portrayed in court because the parties have standing. I mean, this is the candidate versus the other candidate. Also, by the way, I should mention that um, if Hobbs is, sworn in before this trial is over, before this court case is over, uh, there is actually protocol for this. And the uh, Lake team has cited the inauguration of somebody in 1916 that was retracted and saying, look, if the inauguration of Hobbs takes place, a court can still change the results as took place in 1916 in a disputed, disputed gubernatorial election. So will it happen? Chances are no, but by God, we're going to look at it. Thanks for tuning in to Wiggins America. Oh, and by the way, my family, I think tonight, actually, we're looking to do something Christmassy. We've done a lot of the stuff in the St. Louis area before, so we're looking for something we've never done. Last week, we went and walked through a, a beautiful, I don't know what they call it, like Christmas display in Bethalto, Illinois. Never heard of it, did it, loved it. So if you have any suggestions for my family to do tonight, I would love to hear them. Stuff that maybe is off the radar a little bit that's in your town that I've never heard of. Love to come do that with my kids and my wife. At Radio Wiggins on Twitter or WigginsAmerica.com. You can contact me through there too. Get more at 971talk.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.